Welcome to the Next Level Soul podcast, where we ask the big questions about life. Why are we here? Is this all there is? What is my soul's mission? We attempt to answer those questions and more by bringing you raw and inspiring conversations with some of the most fascinating and thought-provoking guests on the planet today. I am your host, Alex Ferrari. I've always wanted to help the audience take their soul to the next level, so I've partnered with Mind Valley and other amazing free courses on spirituality, mind, body, soul, longevity, wealth, and so much more. All you need to do is go to nextlevelsoul.com forward slash free. Disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guest and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of this show, its host, or any of the companies they represent. Now, today on the show, I welcome back Yogi Anan Maratra. And this time, Yogi Anan and I are going to be talking about how to manipulate the quantum field and reality. We had a deep conversation about quantum physics from the Vedic perspective and how this ancient, ancient spiritual texts were talking about quantum physics thousands of years ago. It is an eye-opening conversation that I know you guys will enjoy. So let's dive in. I'd like to welcome back to the show, Anand Merotra. How are you doing, Anand? Very good. How are you? I am good, my friend. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. I'm, I'm excited to talk to you again. You were, you were popular on our, our last episode, the last conversation has been watched by by many people. And I just love talking to you. I could talk to you for days and days and days. Uh, so I wanted to have you back and really kind of focus our conversation on the similarities between spirituality, uh, your perspective on consciousness and quantum physics and, and science and how those two worlds are really starting to connect more and more on a daily basis. In many ways, quantum physics is catching up with what um, the Vedas have been talking about for thousands of years. So can you can you tell the audience what is vet, uh, the Vetnas and are there similarities between it and quantum physics? The, sorry, say again, the Ved, Ved, the, the Ved, Vetnas? Vedanta. Vedanta, thank you very much. I apologize. <laughs> the, wor- the word Vedanta uh, has few meanings. The first meaning is that it's at the end of the Vedas, right? Mm-hmm. So it refers to the collection of writings, which is attached to the end of the Vedas, the Vedas being the oldest surviving scriptures of our world today, which are the, the most voluminous book of the yogic tradition, right? Mm-hmm. So we get Yajura, Atharva, and the Samaveda. And so Vedanta is the end part of the Vedas. The other meaning of Vedanta is it made up of two words, Veda and Anta, meaning the wholeness of knowledge, the end of knowledge, the ultimate knowledge. And so Vedanta is referring to the, the nature of self, the knowledge of self. For the self is at the, at the center of all knowing. It is the self who knows. But if the knower is not known, all knowledge is held in ignorance. So after speaking about the nature of reality and all in its expressions in the relative, in all the distinct roles that we play and how to optimize our life, then the whole uh, teaching comes down to, but hey, do you know who you are? And that's where Vedanta comes into place. And the Vedanta begins with the fundamental uh, 
inquiry into nature of self. And the, there is a unity of realization that the self's nature is consciousness, that consciousness is a causal, that uh, there is no cause to consciousness, that consciousness is not an emergent phenomena, but rather the foundation of reality for all realities experienced by consciousness. And so it's a deep exploration of self. And uh, which gives rise to, you know, which is very, and, and talking about multiple dimensions of reality, that ultimately reality is what is perceived in a certain bandwidth of consciousness. Like a butterfly lives in a butterfly universe and a, you know, elephant lives in an elephant universe, right? So that reality conforms, an elephant's reality conforms to the elephant's perception. The bat's reality conforms to the bat's, bat's per perception. The ant, which seems, which has, from a physical structure level, the biggest, you know, brain to the body, right? Uh, they, we, when we watch ants, I mean, they, they, I'm fascinated oh. by ants, you know, oh, yeah. <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. They're always busy and they, are, they seem to be up to something, but they seem so alien to us, right? Like, but they, they, you realize that they're up to something. There is a whole meaning to their existence, beginning, middle and end. And their, their journey has a purpose. So they're always on their way somewhere. Right. So the ant lives in a very ant-specific universe. So we find the reality conforms to the perceiver. So from the Vedanta, you know, you, which now quantum physics is talking about, the most popular of the quantum physics now coming to the string theory, which, you know, which is talking about multiple dimensions. And uh, so the universe from the, Vedic, from the Vedanta perspective, there are multiple dimensions of reality, each conforming to a particular state of consciousness. And that consciousness is not an emergent phenomena, but a causal. And the nature of self is chitta, is consciousness. So everything is within consciousness, which gives to the observer effect, right? The, as is the observer, so is the observed. As is the experiencer, so is the experience. And that's the great, as is the dancer, so is the dance. That's Nataraja, you know, in Switzerland at the you know, where they do the hydron collider, they have, you know, they have the statue of Nataraja the dancing Shiva, which points to one of the, amongst other things, it points to the unity, the, you know, the primacy of the dancer, that the dancer is ultimately the dance. There are no, you know, uh, the dancer has to be there before the dance commences. So as, as they say, no, no, nothing exists until it's observed, essentially. Yeah, but the, we, we, we are talking, right? We are right. speaking. And there is a question about does something exist? That question itself is being asked by, some, by an experiencer. So in the absence of the experiencer, we, we cannot even fathom it. We cannot imagine the absence of experiencer. Because whatever you imagine is being imagined by an experiencer, by a knower. And is that consciousness? That is consciousness. Consciousness is what makes any experience possible, right? So everything is experience. Life is an experience. Any thought, feeling, sensation, observation is an experience. And experience is rendered, that's what experience means, that which makes contact with consciousness. So it is consciousness that experiences. It is consciousness that knows. So the knower is consciousness. Mm. The knowing is consciousness. And ultimately, that which is known is also held in consciousness. So the knower, known, and the process of knowing allow consciousness. So in Bhagavad Gita, it's called the Chetra, meaning the field, Chetra Raja, the knower, 
and Chetragya, the process of knowing, it's all an expression of consciousness. And so the nature of pure being is called Sat Chit Ananda, Chitta being pure consciousness. So how can somebody distinguish between the ego's voice and consciousness? So the consciousness, the another word which is used for consciousness and this very beautiful distinction being made in the Vedanta is Atman, right? So Atman is the universality localized. Okay. So that is the fundamental sense of I amness. So you and I are talking mm -hmm. and we are talking from a very, you know, connected place within our being, we can experience a certain level of unity, the listeners who are listening to us, they are only listening to us because they can experience a certain level of unity, meaning they resonate with what we are saying, otherwise they would have moved on to something else by now. Mm -hmm. So if you're still on, there is a certain level of unity being experienced, yet within that unity, there is also distinction. So we are deeply connected, yet we still have a unique aperture. Every listener listening has a unique aperture. Uh, of understanding, of perception, of consciousness. That unique aperture in Vedanta is referred to as Atman, the localized universality. So the Atman then declares, Aham Brahmasmi, I am totality, right? Mm -hmm. So the Atman's nature is Brahman. Now the Atman has mind. So we have the experience, we all say, oh, my mind is crazy, no? Mm -hmm. Oh, my thoughts, they are going crazy. Now if the West materialist thinking believes that consciousness is an emergent phenomena, that even the I is merely nothing but an emergent phenomena within the brain. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Then how can that I experience its own thoughts as distinct from it? Right. right. Or then the I also is a thought. <laughs> so if I also is a thought, then who is the perceiver? But we know from the intimate experience of ourselves, we can have this experience that we can find ourselves actually as a distinct presence from the activity of the mind. So the I, chitta, is subtler than the mind. The mind is structured within consciousness. But the I, the pure I, is subtler than the mind. It is not to be found within the mind. The mind rather is to be found within the I. Now that mind has memory. That is manas. Because why does it have memory? Because there is the, in relative reality, there is the experience of time. And time means moving from known to the unknown. Right? That's why we experience time. Because we remember what happened yesterday. We don't remember what happened tomorrow, so we feel we are being dragged by this arrow of time. So there is manas, memory. That's one of the main reasons why we have time, right? Because we have memory, manas. And then the second is the, we have meaning making. We make meaning up, right? Yeah. We give things meaning, we, and that is called buddhi. And that's from where the term buddha comes, right? Buddhi is intellect. And Buddha is the awakened intellect, the buddhi. And then the third aspect of the mind is ahankara or ego. Okay. So ego is the after effect of memory and meaning making. Right. So the Atman 
enters relative field of reality, starts to experience space-time flowing within its own field of consciousness, starts to develop memory, interacts with parents, culture, listens to stories, listens to religious stories, listens to socioeconomic stories, watches television. All these words, our mind is a sponge, it is absorbing everything, manas is being formed. So the child's eyes are wide open. As we are children, we are wide open. Mm -hmm. We can sleep with our eyes. Our brains are developing at phenomenal rate. We are absorbing incredible information from being incapable of speaking. In few years, we start to make meaning up by putting sounds together. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden, language is born. And then language through language, stories are born. So mind generates that. And then the I am starts to be formed. Oh, I am American. Oh, and then we go to school and then we find body. Oh, you are not good enough. You're not pretty enough. And then that I am, the Atman starts to create this identity within its own mind, which is the ego, right? Mm -hmm. So ego is a hallucination that Atman has. And, you know, in English, the closest word to, word to it is soul. But soul often is sometimes can be misunderstood as an isolated self. The Atman is not isolated self. It is just the localized universality. And that is why in Vedanta, one of the Mahavakyas, the first great declarations of truth is Aham Brahmasmi, that I am totality. Who says that? The Atman says that. So it is important to have that distinction when we are talking about Atman. We are not speaking of an isolated identity. It is a unique aperture to wholeness, but its essential nature is whole. Right. So the concept of one or the law of one, if, if you will, that we are all one, that our soul is a extension of a unique extension of the whole, the whole entity, as opposed to a separate soul that got like is lost in the universe somewhere and it's it's hiding yes. in this body let's say it is just a, re a unique representation of source of god of whatever you'd like to call it of the whole and that's yes. the concept that seems to be coming up more and more is that we this idea of the one that we are all connected and buddhist buddha's been talking about this since he came out which is uh all creatures all things are an expression, a unique expression of the source of God. From the ant to the blade of grass, they all have forms of consciousness, just different levels of consciousness. Like a, a, a blade of grass has enough consciousness to follow the sun. And the ant does what the ant does. So is that what you're saying? Yes, 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 yes. So, so I'd love to d dive in a little bit into what you were saying in regard, because I've, I've never heard it put this way, and it's so beautifully put, that there are multiple realities that we are currently living in, but the reality is based on the perception of who is seeing it. So the, the, the elephant's reality, the ant's reality, the dog's reality, these are different realities completely. My, my cat's reality is very different than mine. We kind of share the same world, but the perspectives are massively different. And but that goes with any human being as well. My reality is very different than your reality. So, it, from the from the Veda's point of view, what does it talk about in regards to these multiple realities or multiverse, which is a, a, a key word that's being thrown around a lot now? 
the multiverse of different versions of reality. Yeah, see, from the on the as far as the multiverse theory is concerned, you know, the from the Vedic perspective, uh, the you know the the concept of time. When we speak about universe, we have to speak about time, right? Because it's really time. Mm -hmm. So time and space, they're inseparable, right? And so we find that from the Vedic perspective, the, even the concept of time is billions of years, right? <laughs> that uh, how, how old is the universe? Billions, right? So it's a, just for, as a metaphor that in one breath of Brahma, there is thousands of lifetimes, billions of lifetimes of a human being. In one breath of Narayana, there is million lifetime of Brahma and one breath of Shiva, there is millions of lifetimes of Narayana. So we are speaking of incredible scale of time, right? And so the, and what is the nature of pure being? It is Nirakal, meaning it is timeless. Mm. Now that's a really a, a very important insight for when we speak about God as a, with an address, right? God as a personality, then God exists within space-time somewhere. And so if God exists within space-time, then space-time becomes primary. God is secondary, right? Mm -hmm. So within the uh, Vedic teachings, there is the term called nirakal, nirakar, formless, timeless dimension of pure being. That nature of pure being is Timeless. There is no time at that level of being. So time emerges from that level of being. Mm -hmm. And since time emerges, with time emerges what? Space. Time and space emerge together. And with it, as the time and space emerge, there is universes. So within every time space is a particular, within every timeline is a universe. Right? So you have not one universe, you have multiple universes, like a room full of bubbles, balloons, you know, balloons which feel like universes. So there is universes within universes. And that's one of the things what Shiva's dance represents, right? So do you see the circle of fire around that, around the Nataraja dance of Shiva? Mm -hmm. And all those distinct flames represent a universe, right? So the universe which is born out of this ferocious energy of this ferocious energy that is Shiva, that power of consciousness, the dance of Shiva Shakti, which is inseparable, consciousness, the being and becoming, right? So from the yogic perspective, why is there anything at all? Because that's the nature of being. Like, why is fire hot? The fire does not decide, oh, today I'm going to be hot and tomorrow I'm going to be cold. The nature of fire is hot. The nature of water is wet. So the nature of being is to become, right? That's why Shiva and Shakti. So since that being becomes, it's not one universe, it's multiverses, many universes are there. They're form and being created within the breath of the cosmic being. And can one have access within the, uh, at the level of localized consciousness that is the Atman? Mm -hmm. We are experiencing, you know, we, as you were saying that we have, you have unique aperture and I have unique perspective, but there is enough overlap. Right. 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 So there is enough overlap. So there is enough overlapping of our own unique uniqueness so that we have a certain level of consensus about what reality we perceive. When we have less overlap with someone, then we have extreme difficulty in understanding them.
We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. They appear like an alien to us. They become the villain, right? So in right, that's what breeds all violence and conflict in the world, right? So in yoga, we say the the only way out is in. So only way out of violence is in. Meaning, as you go in and you expand your awareness, you start to gain more overlap with distinct apertures. Okay. So your ability to understand the distinct approaches increases because you're gaining wholeness. And so the so-called other starts to become your own very self. That's a really, really interesting perspective. I, I never really thought of it that way, but you're absolutely right. Because once your awareness, your internal awareness becomes wider and wider, like a, a Jesus, a Buddha, a Yogananda, these kind of masters, their awarenesses became so wide that they understood that there was no differences that we all are one and that's the thing but when your awareness is so narrow that is where violence and fear and anger come into play so like the first times the europeans walked into india i'm assuming there was a a couple of uh, a little bit of violence (laughs) (laughs) because it was so different than what they were their perception and it seems like as a as a as a as a species we've been slowly becoming more aware to this point now where when for example when yogananda showed up in the 20s no one had ever seen an indian in a turban or heard any it was completely alien where now these concepts are much more accepted and we're more globalized so there's not as much separation as there was because the awareness has opened we still have more to go, no question. But from where we were 100 years ago to where we are now, the awareness, internal awareness has grown, correct? Absolutely. I mean, awareness being the knowing quality of consciousness. So what we know, we, our knowing is moving in the direction of greater unity. And, you know, you have this great painting behind you, which for us yes. represents the celestial ashram of, of Babaji in Badrinath. Yes. Yes. Right. So uh, there, you know, Sri Yukteswar speaks about this being Dwapara Yuga, right? Mm-hmm. And the Dwapara Yuga, from his calculation, which, you know, let's say it can be Dwapara within Kali Yuga. It's a very, very deep Vedic mathematics question, but there is a distinct uh, higher Yuga quality to the times we are living in. Mm-hmm. When you compare it to even, even in our lifetimes, you know, if we have been alive for a few decades, we can see that there is a phenomenal acceleration in the potential for knowing each other, mm-hmm. where the bo- barriers to knowledge are dissolving, where space is no more a barrier to knowledge. Like right now, I'm sitting in Lakshmanjula above Rishikesh in the base of the Himalayas, right, in, mm-hmm. in a very remote location comparatively. And we are having this conversation and somebody can be driving, you know, in Vegas and be hearing it or somebody can be in Italy or Australia and be hearing this. So we find that space and time are no more barriers to knowledge. So there is this greater unity. So this is Dwapara Yuga, which is the higher Yuga than Kali Yuga. You know, Kali Yuga is dark. Mm-hmm. It's Dwapara, Dwapara meaning the age of openness. Dwa is the where duality, of course, opens up more. So you find, and that started from the Sri Yukteswar's perspective at the end of 1800s, 
which coincides with you know within the contemporary era one of the first you know indian yogis before yogananda was vivekananda uh-huh. who came to america yes. and then uh, you know uh, yogananda came and that really opened up the floodgates of this incredible movement and so in the last purely on that level of spiritual emergence and resurgence rather which is happening and also at the level of technology there is a phenomenal growth i mean if you study the biology of humanity it's not like we have grown more brain or somehow we have a thicker cortex or nothing has happened but somehow the information that is available in the field is much more within the last 100 and 150 years or so right there is a much faster acceleration that has happened and that is the apara yuga so we find greater unity now absolutely so you said something really pa- really quickly you said the field are we discussing the concept of the quantum field or the akashic records or where all information lives that you're now we're just being we're being given opportunities to access or souls are incarnating that can access this information yeah, yeah you know so like you know the from the vedic perspective there is the field of veda right mm-hmm. so the all, at that subtlest level of being all knowledge is held in unity meaning it is not isolated knowledge it's part of that one whole ocean mm-hmm. and so there is the the kind of the sea of knowledge which is the field of veda right and that that knowledge starts to flow and that flow of knowledge is the domain of saraswati so in the vedas the one of the goddesses who is really deeply invoked is saraswati and so she's shown picture with a veena in her hand and a book of knowledge so saraswati represents this junction point where the boundless knowledge the sea of knowledge starts to get converted into knowable knowledge right so what we know there is a gap in our knowing right so we know and we don't know we know and we don't know we know and we don't know so that there is a to to have certain level of knowability there has to be also the unknown right mm-hmm. because that's what makes knowledge what distinguishes knowledge is that you know versus you don't know something and so there is this flow like the music when you play play music mm-hmm. there is a silence between every note and that gives the the note its value Great. and so that silence is the gap so saraswati converts this silence into knowledge right and this it's a veda being known what becomes available within a certain yuga right so it, the from the vedic perspective we are living in a comparative comparatively higher yuga now mm-hmm. within the great kali yuga there is a higher age of dwapara happening where we find i mean and we can we all whoever is alive as i said before we can verify this from our own observation oh. you know even like 1995 oh jeez <laughs> there was no internet right like 99 internet was maybe within the defense or governments have it but public domain yeah it wasn't that easily accessible and you know iphone is not too long ago you know 2000s, now we have early 2000s yeah you know and now we have this you know zoom and all these things we have podcasts and all these things this is phenomenal acceleration in the flow of knowledge you know so it's much more available but is dwapara so is the age of duality right so one of the meanings of dwa is duality mm-hmm. so we have an acceleration in the possibility or the accessibility of the spiritual transformation but at the same time we also have an acceleration in the potential for self destruction we can destroy ourselves much quicker 
<laughs> than let's say 150 years ago, right? When that you had to 300 years ago in order to fight a battle, you had to get on a horse and bring out a metal, like just a sharp metal, and fight. Now you can be eating a hamburger, you know, go out for lunch and come back and just play a video game. It, this this time it's just real, and you can shoot people thousands of kilometers away from by using a drone. Mm -hmm. uh, you can you can attack someone. You can express your violence towards someone just by sitting on a computer and write aggressive things about them. Mm -hmm. You can be disturbed by, you can, you can have anxiety attacks just by looking at a phone, by reading something, right? So there is a, a great gift of these times, but there is also a great need for vigilance, for it is an accelerated movement, faster, much faster. Either we can go much faster in the direction of growth, or we can go much faster in the direction of self-destruction. Right, because if, if, if the nuclear bomb would have been given <clears throat> in the Genghis Khan days, we would have destroyed yeah. ourselves. Exactly. Or the Alexander the Great days, or the Roman days, we would have destroyed, just the planet would have been exactly. gone. We're not too far away, <laughs> unfortunately, to that point. You know, <laughs> but hopefully there's enough fail-safes that it won't happen, but at those times, the con the consciousness the the awareness we just weren't ready for that kind of so is that another thing that as we become more evolved they drip out they meaning the field or the universal intelligence drips out information as or knowledge as we are capable of handling it in this age you see yeah the the time flows so there are distinct levels of consciousness, right? So distinct levels of time also, like a butterfly's lifespan. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Is for us a week or so, right? Or like when we go into a dream reality, when we dream, in the dream, a dream might seem that it lasted for a year or a few days or a month, but in relative reality, maybe few seconds have passed, right? So you find time behaves differently at distinct levels of consciousness. Yet all experience requires time, right? Because experience means the, there is a flow of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And that flow of knowledge happens in time. Right? So there is a base nature, there is a certain intrinsic quality of manifest reality, which has Kala. So one of the names for Shiva in yogic system, right? And the great name of the great mother is Kali, mm -hmm. the great destroyer of time. So in the relative reality, it's there, it changes, but it is there. Mm -hmm. So there is a certain flow of time which gives rise to the potential of what we call yoga system. Right, just like the whirling of the earth around the Surya and then ultimately the galactic year. So we find these whirling spiral movements. And so that gives a certain flow to changes and there is a certain flow of time. And within that, of course, there is time within time within time. So this whirling of time gives rise to the potential of distinct levels of knowledge being available, which is called the yoga system. And within that, depending on the level of consciousness you have, you can start having access to that level of knowledge and information. 
Now, what you do with that information, <laughs> how you use it, that's the, you have free will. So free will and predeterminism coexist. They are not opposing values, actually, but they are complementary. One cannot exist without the other. And we know that from our own intimate experience. Now, you, you've mentioned time a few times in this conversation, but it, from my understanding, isn't time a man-made construct? based around our Earth circling the sun, where if it's another unit, like the, the concept of time in Jupiter is very different than the concept of time on Earth, based on the rotations and things like that. But if you go to another galaxy, time is relative, isn't it? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Time is relative, just like in your dream. As I right. said, you dream, time is different. But there is a You go a in time. deep meditation. Right. Yes, there is a time. <laughs> because you see, time is what is a process, a flow of knowledge. Right. So, as long as the experiencer is experiencing, the experiencing is time. You see. Mm -hmm. So when you say I'm experiencing, so there is a movement in it. Yeah. So when you go into deep meditation, mm -hmm. deep, when you transcend all thought. And there is this, and you now, you have transcended all fluctuations. Chitta vritti nirodha yoga. So the chitta has, there is no vritti, meaning you have transcended the modifications of consciousness. Mm -hmm. Yet in that being space, there is still a flow of time being felt. Because there is an experiencer experiencing. Right? There is the meditator meditating. So you can come out and you can sometimes feel, Oh, only a few minutes have passed. You have this feeling, oh, a few minutes have passed. You look at the watch, maybe one hour has passed. Right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, happened to me. Right. <laughs> so same thing in sleep. Like you go to deep sleep. Sometimes you might, you know, take a fall asleep. It usually happens in the afternoon with people. If they're really tired and they go to sleep in the after lunch and they fall deep, thoughtless, dreamless sleep. They wake up and they might feel, oh, how long I've been asleep. I've been asleep very long. But they might see only 15 minutes they've been asleep. So you find time absolutely is relative, but there is still a time. Regardless. Right? Yes. So there is a dimension where there is no time. Absolutely. There is nirakal state of being where there is no time. But within the relative reality, all relative is time, space time, right? It is stages within the field of consciousness, locations within the infinite sea of consciousness. So I want to, so we've been talking a little bit about our reality and the awareness and how our awareness is and our agreement to what we are agreeing to and our awareness is create the reality we have. Is there a concept in the Vedas talking about how to co-create with reality, co-create with the source energy, our reality and, and, and how we walk through life? Yeah. So I speak about these four stages of experience, right? Mm -hmm. So at the grossest level is the experience of the ego, where the ego experiences itself as an in isolation, right? So ego experiences itself in isolation. So its fundamental experience is life is happening to me. So there is an alien quality to life, right? So you're, you wake up and that's the reason of existential anxiety that human beings suffer from. That you wake up and now you have to face the unknown. 
and the unknown is a threat. So you have this existential threat. So there is this chronic sense of restlessness, meaning you're not at you're not home. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then as you have a certain level of awakening, the first level of unity starts to happen. Then now the Atman can see it's not the ego and can start to experience the relative reality as an ally. So it starts to have life is happening for me. Right. And that requires a certain level of consistent awareness. As you maintain that, then it starts to happen. Life is happening through me. Right. Thy will be done. Mm -hmm. The source energy is flowing through you. Now you are no more resisting the creative intelligence that organizes everything from the atoms in your atoms and molecules in the body to the Milky Way galaxy. There is the creative intelligence. So you start to become much more open to that creative flow of existence. So it starts to happen, you know, in the Bible, it says, Thy will through me. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's this experience that is the experience of flow, that there is an incredible intelligence. A lot of artists and people have this experience of flow state where you find that incredible genius is happening. You're doing something incredible. But you don't know, you, you, you don't think that you are doing it, right? It's just happening through you. And you can call it, oh, I'm in the zone, I'm in the flow. But you feel you're plugged into something greater. And that gives you such an experience of high. It mm -hmm. gives you such, a, such an experience of meaning to life. You, you come out of that and you feel, oh my, you're elevated. Something changes in you because you find meaning in that experience. You somehow are plugged into a greater intelligence, mm -hmm. right? And then it, that is the state of co-creation, right? Where you are being the channel to that creative intelligence of existence. It's flowing through you. And that becomes a desireless desire, desireless living. So it's not the desireless living is not you fighting desire, but rather your desire becoming in tune with the desire of existence for you. And that's what we call dharma, right? So dharma is spontaneous right action, co-creating with existence, where you are an instrument in the hands of the greater intelligence. You are being informed by spirit instead of you interfering, <laughs> using your greatest gift to your own destruction. That's a wonderful way of putting it. Uh, it's wonder. Hope I hope everyone listening gets a little bit out of that because that's very profound and can solve so many problems in a person's life if they could just make that switch in their in their in their point of view. Now, uh uh, so much throughout uh, throughout the Vedas and throughout the yogic philosophies, the concept of vibration is brought up. Um, and in many spiritual practices, the concepts of vibration has come up, where in quantum physics, vibration is also a major element of what they're what they're discussing as well. Can you talk about the parallels between our vibration? That if everything is a vibration, even though that chair you're sitting on doesn't look like it's vibrating, it is vibrating uh, and versus the vibrations of what the quantum physicists are talking about in, inside of a, a, an electron or an atom. You see, from the yogic perspective, the whole universe is a dance, right? Dance of, dance of who? Dance of Shiva or dance of Shakti, Shakti mm -hmm. being primordial energy. And now string theory is speaking about, now I cannot, I do not call myself a scientist or anything, right? I prefer the term yogi is better. 
<laughs> just joking. <laughs> we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. But the string theory is talking about, you know, ultimately that all particles are points on the strings, right? So that the fundamental nature is based reality is, is vibratory. And because you keep looking for subatomic particles and the list keeps getting longer and longer. <laughs> you don't find the fundamental particle. So what you find at the fundamental level is not a particle, but an energy. Right. right? Because ultimate, there is no such thing as the ultimate thing in the universe. All you have is events unfolding at different rates. And so it's all events within the field of Shakti, which is pulsations right, of energy. So Shakti in the Tantras, you speak about Shiva and Shakti. So Shiva is the primordial consciousness. And at a certain level, the, that Shiva principle, Shiva Tattva, has a spanda, a pulsation. And that pulsation is Shakti. And in that Shakti comes relative reality meaning the birth of space-time. Universes upon universes are formed there. Now, as that pulsation is forming this greater structure, within that also is forming substructures. So substructures are all fields of vibration, of, of Shakti only. Right? So then in the Patanjali Yoga Sutra, one of the terms that Patanjali uses for it is Pranava, the, the base vibration which becomes Om, the sacred mantra in the yogic tradition. Mm -hmm. And the Om being the hum of the universe, the base hum, which is there. So all the other mantras are built on Om, right? Mm -hmm. So within the yogic practices, there is a phenomenal uh, importance on the use of correct sound and how to use sound to change your physiology and change your thought and change your feeling. And sound is a, an effect of vibration. Wherever there is vibration, there is a sound, either audible sound, or inaudible sound. So in the yogic system, there is specific practices. So it's not just a belief, but you can verify to shift specific techniques to shift your vibration. And that vibration is your feeling state, your thinking state, your emotional state, your seeing state, your being state ultimately starts to change. Right? So when you apply and then as a result, when you shift, what do you find? your life shifts, right? Mm -hmm. So you shift your vibration and your reality shifts. It's a verifiable thing. We don't need to believe in it. We don't need to believe in it. We can practice it and verify it from our own observation. That's what science is, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a, the vibration, sometimes you speak of vibration, it can sound like, oh, such a, you know, abstract term, shift your vibration. Okay, make it very actual, concrete. Vibration is what? It is your thinking. It is your feeling. It is your emotional state, feeling state, thinking state, seeing state, being state. And so when you start to work with your being, all the things you have available, you start to shift those. <coughs> you start how you're vibrating starts to change, what you're experiencing starts to change, what you're seeing starts to change. Mm -hmm. Your whole life starts to change. For the fundamental nature of reality is vibratory. Nobody can deny that. Everything is an event. Your thoughts are vibration. Everything you think is vibration. The voice inside your head, which generates anxiety, which generates that you are feeling of not being enough, 
where you feel, you know, the sense of meaninglessness, these are all vibrations, all currents within your own field of consciousness. So you can work with that Shakti and you can convert it into something which inspires you. Right? So let me ask you this in regards to the vibration, um, you know, in my studies of the Vedic texts and the yogic philosophies, as a, as a master starts to ascend and their vibration starts to go higher and higher because they are getting closer to the awareness of one and a higher state of love because the, the, the vibration of love is the highest form of, 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 from what I understand, highest form of vibration where anger and hate and that is a very low, very low vibration. So what can we do to raise our vibration? And, and isn't, isn't the point of life in many ways to evolve to a place where we are the Buddha, we are Jesus, we are the Yoganandas, where we eventually get to that place in our evolution? Yes, I mean, that's what evolution is from yogi perspective, is greater unity, right? Mm -hmm. That's what the word yoga means, from moving from a state of isolation, mm -hmm. which is imbalanced in the chakra system, it is the root chakra, fear, isolation, ego, mm -hmm. to third eye, agya chakra, Right, so all the Kriya master, the Kriya is based on that, bringing the Shakti up to the third eye and the Agya Chakra, which is unity. And one of the other names for unity is love. Right? right. And so there is an optimization of that. And what is important to realize, you see, is that we are not trying to get somewhere. That's not our teaching in our tradition. Mm -hmm. We are not chasing some another carrot. <laughs> we are not chasing some perfect state of enlightenment or when one I am enlightened. No. Enlightenment is a, is a new idea, right? So what we have in yoga, evolution is a better term. Because, evolu you know, or if you have to use enlightenment, it's better to use living enlightenment. So it gives an idea that you are not chasing some end goal. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. So you are now not using enlightenment as another form of waiting. That, oh, I'm going to be, now I'm in the enlightenment waiting room. <laughs> Instead of my salary raise waiting room, finding my soulmate waiting room, right? So my Ferrari waiting room, whatever, <laughs> your, my million follower waiting room. So it's just now you have changed the label of your waiting room to enlightenment. That's not what it is. We, it's living enlightenment. So it's a greater degree of awareness ever unfolding, right? Mm -hmm. So it's moving from unity to unity from love to love, that it comes a point in your evolution where you are not moving from lack, but you are moving from wholeness to wholeness. Our universe is a great example of that. From our perspective, from the localized nervous system that we have, from the limitations that, are, that we experience, we find when we look around the universe, we find an infinite universe. But we also find that this universe is infinite, but it is still expanding. And so it's a great conundrum, you know, infinity in that sense, because it's infinite, yet it is infinitely expanding. So it's, it's a strange thing, you know. <laughs> so it, it, that's the thing with infinity, right? It's a, it's a mind-blowing, <laughs> baffling concept, infinity. Right. So you find that what it is pointing to, because as within, so without, as is the universe, so are we, as is the universe within, so is the universe without, that the ultimate evolution is not from moving from lack to abundance. Ultimate wholeness is, moving from wholeness to wholeness, from love to love, right? And so there, there is the meaning of life. So we are not 
living to get somewhere else. That nirvana is not at the end of life. Mm. Nirvana is not that there is something wrong with this life and we need to go. Nirvana is to wake up to the beauty that there is here. You know, the heaven is here. I mean, this is heaven. Mm-hmm. Within right? you. Yeah, within you. <laughs> right? The, uh, within and within. Because what, when we say within, that within is, everything is within. For everything mm-hmm. is within your consciousness. Everything yeah. is within. Right? So there is, yes, on a certain level, we can say within seems so different, but there is ultimately all within. So the, I always speak about, because a lot of time we can get confused and get into this, oh, I'm not enlightened yet. And so we remain attached to the positionality that keeps us suffering. There is a secret, you know, identification with suffering. Right. And so we have to embrace our awareness and embrace and really step into our greater level of awareness now and then keep keep moving in that direction so i speak about the trinity of yoga the state of yoga the practice of yoga and the experience of yoga right so the state and the practice and the experience merge and when i use the word yoga just as a disclaimer i'm not talking about downward dog Right. <laughs> you mean Lululemon no, pants? No, no Lululemon pants. <laughs> yeah, I don't want like people listening, and then they just stop their car and get out their car and get into downward dogs. You know? <laughs> yeah, yoga. Yoga is the word. Yoga has been uh, kind of taken over in the Western society. In everyone just thinks of the physical, but there is so much more to that word. Absolutely. That's so funny. Um, but so you have a Buddha sitting behind you and, you know, Buddha's story of finding enlightenment and nirvana. He didn't just find nirvana underneath that tree at the binding tree and just go, okay, I'm out. I'm done. He lived a long life. So did Jesus. Jesus found a form of enlightenment where then he started to teach. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. He kept going, but it's, it's just a, a level of awareness. It is not a destination. It is just part of the journey, correct? Exactly. Yeah, it's not the end. It's the beginning. No. Very much so. Very much so. But when now, you find love, right? When you... Right. Like when as a child, remember? One of the earliest memories I'm sure everybody will have is then when you were a child and you found... And as children, we are discoverers right because of our brains are forming and we discover and we are so excited by the simplest of things maybe it's a bird or a fountain or some just the way the sun is shining on the still water and whenever we find something that amazes us the immediate thing that we want to do is we want to show it to someone whether it is our mother or our sibling we want to share it mm-hmm. so that is our innate nature when we want to share the love, we want to share our joy. And so when we come to our essential nature in our own Buddha state, that's naturally what we do. We want to share it with others. Right. Whenever you find something of value, you say, hey, listen, I found something of value. It, it will help you. Here it is. And so then when you share it, it increases even further. Right. That's why right now we are speaking and we are speaking of some some. Some things that mean deeply to us, the questions that you ask and I'm speaking and the underlying intention, why, you know, I'm sitting here at this time and you are there 
because there is an innate willingness in us to share that innate call to yes. share that you find is true within your own heart mm-hmm. or you know there is other hearts which know it and they just need to hear it and there is a certain vibrationally vibration a certain resonance that can happen right so the buddha did not become buddha just by sitting under the tree the buddha became buddha when he started to teach and share it mm-hmm. right so love is ultimately experienced when we are loving mhm it's very it's very true and when you find love uh let's say a romantic relationship it is not the end it is my friend just the beginning <laughs> <laughs> just the beginning and you just keep going you're like oh i found you you're my soulmate i'm done no it's no you then i begin then you start the journey it is it is part of the journey it is not a destiny love is not a destination love is part of the journey so that's a really great way of looking at enlightenment because you're right people do will start putting that i love the carrot there's like another carrot to chase another nice. carrot to chase um now there is uh, one thing that fascinated me especially when i read autobiography of a yogi which was the first time i read it i couldn't grasp it when i was younger i i got it when i was in my 20s and i just couldn't i wasn't ready yet only later 10 years 12 years later when i read it again i started to grasp certain concepts and they started to ring true to me because my awareness had grown a bit but the concept of yogic powers and i'm going to bring this all around to uh quantum physics in a minute i'm just curious to hear your perspective the concepts of when you evolve as a yogi to a certain place the uh the levitation the being two places at the same time um you know uh, manifestation these kind of things that have been talked about throughout thousands of years about these ideas and in many ways are traps of the ego too it can be but regardless of the traps is it that on a quantum physics level that the yogi has awareness has gotten to a point where they're and i love using this analogy uh, the matrix they see the code in the world and is able to manipulate it in a way that looks magical to other people but to them is just part of their awareness very similarly to uh if i go to an animal and and we're both in the dark and i turn on a flashlight it's magic to that animal because its awareness is not doesn't comprehend the power of the flashlight but to us it's or fire it's it's magical we but we understand the power of fire and how to create fire because we have a different awareness and understanding is that is that a fair yeah. understanding of it yeah miracle is ultimately just the distance between what you know and what you don't know yet right it's just knowledge to yet to be gained mm-hmm. and so the word that is spoken of in the tradition is siddhi mm-hmm. right and siddhi comes from what sadhana so there is the word sadhana sadhana mm-hmm. is spoken to the spiritual practice <laughs> other meaning of sadhana is tuning like you're tuning your instrument right so as you attune your instrument sadhana gives rise to siddhi and the one who has that becomes siddha right? mm-hmm. so so sadhana is tuning and as you tune you just start to become see some things very clearly just like as you said you know if you like if you don't you know somebody speaks a language you never you haven't don't know yet and you wonder like oh my god look how they speak that language to that person it just comes very naturally so that is a level of attunement 
which makes the being to him or her, it's no more a miracle. Mm-hmm. It's just a part of isness of isness. It's just the isness of life. Right. So watching someone play a musical instrument to us might look in many ways magical because, I mean, I would love to be able to play the guitar at, at the level of these masters. But to me, when I look at them, I'm like, how do you do that? But to them, it's walking. It's a yeah, level of, exactly. it's just a different level of knowledge, but it does look miraculous. Exactly. And that's what genius is, right? The definition right. of genius is that somebody who is able to express something in elegant simplicity to that which seems to the observer extremely complex. But in, when you're observing a genius at their craft, you find an absence of effort. Right. If you perceive effort, then you know, okay, wow, this person is great, but you can admire their strength and work, but you, you, would, you wouldn't say that it's a genius. So genius requires, a, from the observer's standpoint, a certain absence of effort. There's an effortlessness to it. Then you know, oh, this is a maestro. He's a master in his field, right? And so that mastery is an absence of effort because the, the individual in that state is plugged in and is just expressing that, that unique creative flow through them. And that's what Siddhis are, you know, you gain a certain refinement of perception, certain level of attunement, you are plugged into a deeper level of, and the Siddhis, when the masters have shown it, it's purely to open our, open the individual's mind to the possibility, right? Mm -hmm. Not really to chase the Siddhi, because ultimately there is only one one miracle and that has never stopped happening. Right. So the this this old story I heard where there was two yogis at the at the base of a of a river, and one said, "Hey, look at what I can do," and he floated across the river, and then the other yogi crossed the bridge, and he's like, "I spent twenty years learning how to do that." And he goes, "I just used the bridge. It seemed <laughs> seemed like a waste of time if it was up to me." Uh, so so the yogi exactly. was chasing the the power where the other one was like, I could have spent these last 20 years doing something more productive because there's other ways to get across the bridge other than floating across it. <laughs> so it can be a trap, these, 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 these. Absolutely. Yoga- you know, one of the greatest, uh, one of the great chants within the yogic tradition is Hanuman Chalisa, right? And there are incredible insights in that. And one of the things it says, Ashta Siddhi Navanidhi Ke Data. Ashta Siddhi, meaning the eight Siddhis. Mm-hmm. Right, Navanidhi, that the nine points of insights and Ashta Siddhi, that you are the giver of eight Siddhis, right? So, like mm-hmm. these are this levitation, all these different things. But who are you the devotee to? But you are the greatest devotee. Where did you find liberation? At the feet of Sapparam Tapasvi Raja, mm-hmm. right? So, the king mm-hmm. who is not the king who has conquered the world. The word that is used to describe Rama is Tapasvi, who does tapas. So you found liberation through tapasya, not through siddhis, mm. but through tapas. Siddhis are byproduct. They right. just happen, right? So you're not chasing there. That's the byproduct of you doing your tapaha, you getting attuned to your own source nature. Then natural siddhis appear. But then as they appear, they don't have any big meaning to you. They are not like some big, so much charm. There is no charm about them. They're just natural. Like you walk, you walk. <laughs> right, you right. talk, you talk. You, right. you string up such complex meaning 
using just 26, 27 alphabets, you know, <laughs> you just do it without giving a second thought about it. <laughs> well, it's, 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 it's so uh, what you're trying to say is also that the, if you meditate and you are in the process of meditating deeper and deeper and deeper, you will get to eventually a place that you may levitate. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show according to the yoga philosophies, but it is not a goal. We, we don't even chase that. No, no chasing. It's it just like you said, a byproduct. It's a byproduct. Even, yeah, even non-meditators are doing that. They are getting yeah. on the plane and levitating. <laughs> In this yoga, the levitation siddhi is available to everybody. <laughs> you just need a passport. <laughs> you know, just need to buy a ticket and you a can credit levitate. card. A credit card, and you yes. can levitate across continents. <laughs> and your luggage also. <laughs> it is. It is. Uh, that's that's so funny. But it, anyone can levitate. You just get on a plane. <laughs> No, it, it, I, I bring that up because I, I really was curious on the way, what was happening with that and in the scientific quantum realm. Yeah, from the yogi perspective level, you see, our bodies ultimately is akasha, made up of the subtlest pancham element, five elements are there. And the ultimate element from the, on a physiological level is called akasha, right? So this right. is the, uh, the space, ether. Mm -hmm. So the essential nature of even the structure body is weightlessness. Right. And so gravity also, which is, you know, which is the most, one of the most mysterious of the four forces, fundamental forces of nature, according to Western, according to science of these times, let's forget the term Western, according to the science that, you know, the weak nuclear force, strong nuclear force, electromagnetism and, and, and gravity. And gravity is the most mysterious because it's the weakest, mm -hmm. right? It's yeah. so weak and yet it whole seems to hold all of the structure together. And so the ultimately what that gravity is also is an expression of Shakti only. So you can access that certain level of perception where, you know, even when you are experiencing in Kriya, the Shakti is rising. So you can feel within your spine this kind of levitating, elevating, right? So when we are excited, when we are joyous, we jump, right? From young age, when we get excited, we jump. We, we want to push against gravity. Our bodies, when you are happy, your body language is different versus when you are sad. You are more kind of pulled by gravity. You close in, you become narrower. But when you're joyous, you become expanded, you radiate. When you're excited, sometimes as a kid, you can hardly control yourself. You jump out or you go in sporting events. People are excited. They jump out of their chairs. So there is a natural phenomena that when the energy, when we have these peak experiences, there is a levitating they are pushing up that happens right so you can get to that level of inner ecstasy where you can transcend that that expression of shakti as what we call gravity this feeling of heaviness on the structure so that does not mean that you're going to start you know wear a red underwear over some your pants and start <laughs> flying around with the cape but this the whole point is that you you start transcending the illusion of your fundamental identity as matter. And you stop, right. stop living in this kind of a, a, a boundary dominant reality. It starts to become more fluid for you. And it, that has a very transformative effect. 
So in other words, you're, you'll become Neo and start dodging bullets. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no bullets now. In the no rating bullets. system, when you make it to the level of Neo, the bullets disappear. <laughs> right. The, as, as profound as that movie is, the one statement is like, he's like, how do you bend the spoon? You cannot bend the spoon until you understand there is no spoon. And it's taken me decades to understand that statement. It's such a profound statement. But you're like, you said like, oh, when you get to the point of Neo, there is no bullet. There's, it doesn't exist. So of course he could dodge them because they don't exist. <laughs> um, so Anand, I have one last question to you about um, Kundalini energy. And we've kind of talked a little bit about it in the energy that comes from the root chakra going up. Can you talk about kundalini energy and how it, it, it's it's an energy that's apparently dormant inside of us that we open up or with our awareness? Can you explain it a little bit? See, kundalini is referring to the infinite potential of being. As I said in the beginning of our conversation, the Atman is localized universality. So what is the potential of localized universality? It is universality, mm -hmm. right? So what is the potential of Atman is Brahman. And so that Brahman is kundalini. The infinite potential of being is Kundalini. The potential of your own brain, potential of your heart, potential of your creativity. We all know we are infinitely capable. Mm -hmm. And that infinite capacity that pulsates within us, that actually inspires us to get up every day and to create something, to create meaning, to create art, to, to, to reach out to each other, to find connection, that is Shakti, right? And so Kundalini is really referring to that. And when we speak about dormant, it's just uh, speaking about that it is not yet fully, it requires your participation. That evolution at the human level is pro-choice. Okay, It's not involuntary. It requires your participation. So that the, uh, the teaching about that the Kundalini is dormant, meaning it points to that you cannot evolve without participation. Right? Mm -hmm. It requires your willingness, it requires you actively getting engaged in that and then accessing your own infinite potential, moving in that direction. It requires certain practices, certain clearing of your own incorrect knowledge. And there you find it's just a natural unfolding of your own higher nature. That's all Kundalini means. Uh, Anand, I'm going to ask you a few questions I ask all my guests. Um, what is your definition of living a good life? Oh, living a good life is being good. There is no good life. <laughs> Fair enough. Only great people have great lives. So be great, discover your own greatness. Life will become great naturally. <laughs> what is your definition of God? Oh, God is a, the finest experience of relative reality you can have, right? The finer than the finest experience that you can have is God. God is only relevant when you can experience within. God as a collective idea, maybe not so needed. God only as a personal inner experience is relevant. And what is the ultimate purpose of life? Grow. Evolve. Evolve, yes, yes. <laughs> and my friend, where can people find out more about you and the amazing work you're doing in the world? Oh, they can find on, uh, go on sattvayogaacademy.com and a lot of my teachings are on Sattva Connect. It's an online, uh, you know, 
library and platform for all of our teaching. So there is a lot of live streams and stuff they can go and find that. So sattvayogacademy.com and Sattva Connect. And I will put those on uh, in the show notes. And do you have any final messages for our audience, my friend? Just listen and absorb and, you know, know yourself. That, uh, and realize that we are in a, you know, to be here in this time, this is a great privilege. This is the greatest gift. And uh, all the difficulties in our lives are opportunities. They are our teachers. They are only here to guide us closer to ourselves. You know, there is nothing, there is nothing wrong. There is only opportunities. No obstacle, but just the way. And so look and really tune into that. All that you seek truly, truly, truly is accessible within you. Just like the gold is found within the womb of the earth, there is gold hiding within us. My friend, thank you again so much for coming on the show again and sharing your knowledge and wisdom with all of us. I appreciate you so, so much, my friend. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and best of luck, everybody. And namaste. Bye-bye. I want to thank you again, Nan, so much for coming on the show and sharing his knowledge with all of us. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash 230. And if you've only been listening to this over podcasts and you want to watch these amazing conversations, please subscribe to our YouTube channel at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, trust the journey. It is here to teach you. I'll talk to you soon.